All right, we're back. Another week in this week in government enforcement. Jerome Thomas, as always, got Tom Firestone with us. Um, we're by a special guest this week, um, our good friend, Carrie Contini. Um, she is going to be interviewed by Tom, um, talking about the new Cambodia sanctions. Um, I'm interested to hear about that. And then Tom is going to fill us in on um, the very recent late-breaking um, surrender by Steve Bannon in connection with the DOJ's indictment. So um, a lot to talk about, very topical. I apologize. I've, I've got no substance this week because I was on college visits all this week uh, or all this weekend, but I'll get back to you guys next week on substance. So I guess with that, Tom, why don't I hand it over to you? Great. Thanks, Jerome. And Carrie, welcome uh, back to our show. I think this is the second or maybe even third time you've been with us for our listeners. Kerry is a partner in the DC office and one of the leaders of our trade compliance and sanctions practice and really just um, true, one of the firm's best experts on sanctions. And so we wanted to have her today to talk about the new Cambodia sanctions. These kind of came uh, a little bit unexpected last week and sort of in an unexpected form as well. And I wanted to drill down with you on that and find out what this may augur for the future of US sanctions. So first of all, tell us, what exactly happened last week? Who was sanctioned and for what reasons? Yeah, sure. Thanks, thanks, Tom, and thanks, Jerome, um, for, for having me on. So the first thing I want to say is I don't know that I would really call them Cambodia sanctions. It was sanctions against some very specific government officials in Cambodia, but nothing, nothing against the country as a whole, not, not, not sanctioning entire sectors or anything like that. But there, there were sanctions imposed against these two um, individuals who are basically officials in the national, uh, sorry, in the Ministry of National Defense. And they were sanctioned under the Global Magnitsky Sanctions. So that's legislation that I, I know, Tom, you follow this very closely. Um, it's legislation that allows the Office of Foreign Assets Control in the US Treasury Department, which is the main sanctions agency, to sanction parties who are involved in human rights abuses or corruption. And these particular sanctions were imposed for, um, for corruption reasons. So I can I can explain a little bit if you don't mind about specifically what what was uh, what the allegations are. Yeah, what's interesting about this is we see you know and Jerome we've talked about this before kind of the overlap between uh, anti corrupt the U.S. government's anti corruption efforts and mm -hmm. its political efforts and national security efforts and this is a great mm -hmm. example of that we are seeing as you said under Global Magnitsky the it allows them to sanction not just for human rights abuses, but for corruption abuses, which is something that's relevant to businesses, US businesses operating overseas. So tell us, please, what were um, yeah. the, the two officials sanctioned for? What did they do that warranted sanctions against them? Right, so the US government basically said that they were colluding to profit from the construction and updating of a particular naval base in Cambodia. It's called the, the Reem Naval Base Facilities. They conspired to inflate the costs so that they would be able to pocket some of that money, basically. And they, they, they conspired to share from the profits. Another kind of interesting piece of information or context that's not in the press release that, that the, or not in the, sorry, the advisory that, the, that um, was issued last week uh, is that they, uh, the US used to actually have a presence at this base. Uh, China signed what was at the time a secret agreement back in 2019 to allow for its armed forces to use the base for 30 years, and this was reported by the Wall Street Journal. Um, and you know, this is this just makes the whole thing a lot more sensitive because it was said that this would increase China's ability to enforce its interests in the in the South China Sea that it had been claiming, which is a you know very very uh, hot kind of issue. So that could add some additional context to to why this was targeted. 
And it's interesting because there'd be no way for the US government to prosecute these guys for corruption offenses. There's not jurisdiction over it. There's no statute that criminalizes bribe receiving by foreign government officials. But the sanctions is a way to get at the demand side of bribery that we can't otherwise do. And I mean, I feel that this is as important as the FCPA supply side because the you know demand, most people rather receive bribes and receive money than give money, which tells you if the demand side is driving, um, is driving a lot of foreign corruption. So I think this is an important development. Are these the first uh, Cambodian officials sanctioned under Global Magnitsky? No, they're not. And by the way, just going back to your demand side comment, that's one of the kind of uh, the one, one of the big uh, things that Global Magnitsky offers to OPEC is, is a way to go after demand. And we're seeing a lot more of that, not just in Cambodia, but just more broadly. There have been um, there have been designations for corruption reasons, both on the demand and the supply side. So both the, the bribe givers and the bribe receivers, which is kind of what uh, what, what gives it a lot of teeth um, in ways that, you know, it gives it more options for the US government. But to answer your question, no, these are not the first Cambodian officials sanctioned under Global Magnitsky. There have been others. And, and I know we're going to discuss it in a minute, but uh, there was an advisory issued last week at the same time as this sanctions. And that advisory actually, um, it, it's interesting. It, it sort of goes through and tells the story of some of these other sanctions that have been imposed under Global Magnitsky in Cambodia, but just to, to flag the, the two main ones that come up in the advisory, back in December 2019, there were some more designations also for corruption reasons under Global Magnitsky. One of them involved um, a tourism project called Dara Sakur. This was another, and this is interesting, another possible connection to China. Um, this was to be built by, it was a construction project to be built by a Chinese state-owned company called Union Development Company. Um, and this Cambodian official was said to have used Campo Cambodian military forces to intimidate local villagers, clear out land, burn the houses of local villagers that were basically not cooperating. Um, and then at the same time, there was another designation for an, a Cambodian business person who, who was designated as a, as a either current or formal, former government official. So there was some sort of government connection there who was um, a business tycoon with a massive illegal logging operation, which relied on colluding and, and corruption with foreign officials. And that was another instance of misusing um, the military to protect these illegal interests. Hey, hey Tom, can I, can I jump in here real quick? So Carrie, thanks. I, I, I get the China angle on the, 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 the former sanctions. Was there any angle in, in the most recent set of Cambodia sanctions to the, the, the Chinese government and, and the corruption allegations? Or is, are they just simply involved somehow in, in, in the secret 30-year agreement, but there's no connection between that secret 30-year agreement and the, alleged, and the alleged corruption? Yeah, no, there, there's no stated connection. I just thought it was an interesting kind of additional piece. Oh, of yeah, it is. Because... Um, and we'll talk again, we'll talk about it more in a moment, but with this advisory that was issued last week, which is in, essentially intended, this, let me just get to the chase. The US government issued an advisory. And Actually, Carrie, before we get to that, yes. I just want to back yes. up for one second, because the advisory is interesting and warrants its discussion, but just to explain to our viewers who may not know, what is the effect of these sanctions on these guys? Right. Can't yes. get visas, their property is blocked. I mean, is this really meaningful? I mean, were these, are there any chance these guys were gonna come to the US? Is there any chance that they do have assets in the U.S.? Are there other peripheral effects, ancillary effects of being designated that might have some, you know, uh, some effect on these two guys? 
Yeah, so there were visa restrictions, um, but those were announced by the Department of State. It's a slightly different track. The, the, the OFAC sanctions, basically these guys wound up on the specially designated nationals list. So this is a landing spot for a whole bunch of different sanctions programs. And, and that comes with, a, it can be a very, very significant impact for the targets. The, the, what it really means from a legal perspective is that transactions with the US nexus are prohibited. So that means that these people cannot do business in the US, that uh, US companies, US citizens and permanent residents are prohibited from dealing with them, whether directly or indirectly. So it's very broad. Um, transactions involving US dollars that pass through the US financial system are also prohibited, um, which is almost all US dollar transactions that go through any financial system. Uh, the, if, if these individuals do have any assets in the United States or even contracts with U.S. companies, those become blocked and have to be reported to OFAC. And all of these kind of uh, consequences that I just flagged impact not only the individuals targeted by the sanctions, but also any businesses that they own with 50% or more ownership. It's called the 50% rule, and it makes the impact real big. And then just one last thing I want to flag is that there there are also risks even for transactions that have absolutely no US nexus. We call this the secondary sanctions. And basically what that means is OFAC has the authority to add parties to the SDN list who do business with SDNs. So that just, basically what it means is anyone who finds themselves on the SDN list is gonna have trouble with a whole lot of cross-border business. Basically become a toxic third rail. You can't do business with them. Yes. Jerome, yes. I, I yeah, are, are, so do, we, do we know these these folks are still with the Ministry of Defense, Carrie? Is there any kind of public statement about whether they're still currently employed by the Ministry of Defense, or are they former officers? Um, you know, that's interesting. I I don't I don't actually know that personally, but they yeah. were identified in the designation as officials in the Ministry of Defense. It seems to me that they're probably still there. Okay. Yeah. And all these restrictions would apply, I presume, to any company that they are secretly the owners of. If they're the UBO of a company, you've got to be careful about doing business with that company because it's them essentially, right? Yeah. Well, and that gets really tricky from a due diligence standpoint of, you know, how, how do you know if they're, they're at the other end of it? Oh, yeah. Which is why due diligence on one's business partners in emerging markets is so important because you mm -hmm. got to find out who's on the other side of it. If you've got a front company, you know, or a company with no human being behind it, you've got to figure that out for sanctions reasons, for AML reasons, for bribery reasons, for anti mm -hmm. reasons. So um, mm -hmm. just uh, once again, highlights the importance of thorough due diligence on one's business partners. Now I cut you off. You started to talk about the advisory that the U.S. government yeah. so issued together with this, so which they don't always do. I mean, this is relatively rare um, that we have seen things like this in the past. So tell us what did the who issued the advisory and what exactly did it say? Yeah, sure. So and, and by the way, I'm glad you cut me off because we didn't want to jump past that conversation. That was that was important stuff. Um, so so th these advisories are becoming less rare in the OFAC world. I will say now this advisory was was just not just OFAC. It was OFAC state and what was the other one? You probably know. It was three. Was it commerce. Commerce. Yes, that's right. It was OFAC state and commerce. Um, but for the past several years now, we've been seeing OFAC issue more and more of these advisories, and some of them target particular um, geographic regions, like business related to the Xinjiang province in China, 
um, the efforts that Iran and North Korea are undertaking to circumvent sanctions and things that people should watch out for. Sometimes they target specific industries like the shipping industry. There, we've been seeing more and more of these over the years. And now they're becoming more, um, they're involving more agencies of the US government and, and kind of taking a more whole of government approach. That's a term we keep hearing a lot with Biden administration policy in the sanctions space. So this advisory, it's you know, not just OFAC going alone, but, but with other agencies. And the reason they do it that way is that they, they wanna show that the risks are, uh, that, that, there, that there are cross-cutting risks. It's not just a sanctions risk, but they, the, the reason they issued this advisory this way is they wanna show that there are AML risks and government procurement risks and criminal civil litigation risks if you're benefiting from, for example, the uh, benefiting from forced labor or modern slavery export controls risks and sanctions risks, all in the same kind of line of business, you could be encountering all of these risks. Yeah, I think that's such an important point because you know we have it so often uh, in the industry, functions are stovepipe. There's AML, there's sanctions, there's FCPA, but the real world and bad actors don't distinguish among these things. It's not like some kleptocrat is going to say, oh, well, I'm going to demand bribes, but I'm not going to use forced labor. I'm not going to law enforcement. All of these things intersect in reality. And that's why it's so important for practitioners in these, these different areas to be in regular communication like we are. And what I'm thinking is like the advisory, I mean, Jerome, when we look at FCPA stuff, I mean, the issue of is always, what did you know or have reason to know? And if there's an advisory out there issued by the U.S. government saying, these five industries in country X are rife with corruption. It makes it much harder for you to say, oh, we had no reason to believe that our consultant was paying bribes to you know, get us to contract there. Now you may still have that defense, but with this kind of statement out there from the US government, it's basically putting everyone on notice. And I think, again, heightening the burden of due diligence on transactions. Do you agree? Oh, I totally agree. And in this case, they. Oh, sorry. Maybe you were. No, Carrie, go ahead. Go ahead. I think we're all. <laughs> I think Jerome agrees. He was nodding, but I also agree. And this advisory was really doing exactly that. It was it was focusing on the corruption and human rights abuses, the corruption that they say is endemic through uh, the Cambodian financial sector, real estate sector, casinos, and infrastructure. So if you didn't know before, now you know. Exactly. When we advise clients on acquisitions in high-risk markets, Jerome, we've got to be on top of, you know, not just the Transparency International Index, but what advisors, what has the U.S. government told the business community about this? And is the client calibrating its due diligence and compliance to those risks? Yeah, you, you know, I mean, I, I, think, I think kind of the knock-on here is, you know, even though technically the, these sanctions don't impact a U.S. multinational's ability to do contracting with the Ministry of Defense in Cambodia, in reality, um, you know, the fact that there are these sanctions and this, this advisory um, puts them on notice that, you know, this might be going on in your deal, right? Not saying it is or isn't, but again, Tom, it's that, it's that piece of circumstantial evidence, one of many that oftentimes prosecutors will use in the end game to establish some type of state of mind necessary to show whatever underlying offense they want to show. Right. So FDA practitioners have to be completely on top of these things and it's got to be factored into due diligence. Yep. So Kerry, thanks so much for that. Before uh, we wrap up and move to the next subject, what's your prediction for the next sanctions that may be coming from the U.S. government? 
seems that there's a lot of talk about Belarus and the created immigration crisis there as provoking sanctions. Yeah. We're taping on Monday afternoon. I believe the EU is meeting on this mm-hmm. uh, either today or tomorrow. And can we expect mm-hmm. sanctions from them on Belarus? And do you think the U.S. will follow? Yeah, so I totally agree that that's the next one. And in fact, this is one of those situations where as we were going to recording, I'm checking the news and and seeing that the EU, I believe, has just taken that action, focusing on airlines and the aviation sector. And I haven't even had a chance to read it all because it's just happening in real time now. Um, The U.S. is is probably next and, and, you know, focusing on the the U.S. approach tends to be at at this point, you know, more likely to be focused on identifying additional specially designated nationals. But but I mean, it really could go any number of directions from here. There's a lot of room to grow because the EU sanctions were a lot um, more extensive than the U.S. sanctions. So- the previous, the existing round of sanctions. I'm yes. So yes. The U.S. Yes. has left itself some room to just, you know, duplicate what the EU has already done. Exactly. To what the EU does right. today. Right. So it could grow into sanctions targeting broader sectors like the EU has done. There, there's a lot of space there. Well, well, we'll discuss that on a future episode. Now, since uh, Jerome, you're just going to hand it directly to me for- Hand it right over to you, Tom. Curry, we'd love to have you stay around and participate in the discussion. I just have one item I want to focus on, which is the indictment of Steve Bannon last Friday on two counts of contempt of Congress under 2 U.S.C. 192. One of them was for his refusal to appear to give testimony before the January 6th Senate, uh, Senate House Select Committee, um, and one for refusing to produce documents in response to a subpoena. I have to say, I found this uh, indictment by DOJ to be very surprising and a very bold move by Merrick Garland's uh, DOJ. It is exceedingly rare that anybody is criminally prosecuted by DOJ for contempt of Congress. Congress makes these referrals from time to time. They did it, you know, under the Trump administration. They did it under the Obama administration. And you have to go back literally to the early 1980s to find a case where somebody was actually criminally prosecuted for contempt of Congress based on such referrals. I discussed in one of our previous shows, this was um, Rita Lavelle, an EPA official in the uh, Reagan administration, who, as I mentioned previously, actually was acquitted at trial on the very powerful defense when, of why she couldn't comply with the subpoena thing. I just couldn't make it. Um, and she was acquitted on those basis, that basis, which is one of the reasons I think the OJ has been so skittish about bringing these charges. I think this is going to be a very tough case for DOJ. Um, As I mentioned on a previous show, when Bannon got the subpoena, he responded through a lawyer saying, you know, I basically, President Trump has directed me not to comply on privilege grounds. The lawyer wrote this and said, you know, therefore, Mr. Bannon is regretfully unable to comply with your subpoena. However, if there is a court decision to the contrary, we will consider complying. Now, that's not exactly an enthusiastic statement that he intends to comply, but it's enough to show that he consulted with a lawyer and he's got, you know, looking at the law, he's arguably got a decent argument that his refusal to comply was based on good faith advice from his counsel. Now, of course, Trump is a former president, executive of privileges, don't comply, and 
Um, the privilege is with the current, so it's with the current president, not a former president. And Bannon at the time of January 6th was not a White House employee. He was a private citizen. So unlikely that executive privilege would apply to those circumstances. However, there is enough out there in terms of previous court opinions and some DOJ OLC, Office of Legal Counsel opinions, that one could stitch together an argument that we have a good faith belief that privilege um, can apply to some extent to a former president. In fact, the uh, Presidential Records Act allows a former president to weigh in on the production of documents by the National Archives in response to a congressional subpoena. It doesn't give him a veto power over that, but it does give the former president a right to be heard on that issue. So the law recognizes some interest that a former president has in the production of documents. And also there is some precedent that somebody, a former uh, White House employee, may have a privilege argument. Now, I don't think those arguments would be winners by any stretch of the imagination in this case, but that's not the issue. The issue is whether or not the DOJ can satisfy the willfulness standard. And I will, again, I will quote from uh, the DOJ manual on what this means as I have before. It says, an act is done willfully if done voluntarily and intentionally and with the specific intent to do something the law forbids. Now, Bannon responded to the subpoena through his lawyer, citing these privilege arguments. Again, they're not unlikely to be winning arguments, but they may be enough to show that he had a good faith belief, which is enough to defeat the, um, may be enough to defeat the uh, uh, willfulness, uh, prevent DOJ from satisfying the willfulness element of this crime. Um, I think the DOJ might have been emboldened by a ruling by the DC um, District Court last week on the Presidential Records Act subpoena. Um, Trump, of course, had come in and said, no, this can't be produced, this privilege, blah, 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 blah. Uh, the court came out very clearly and said, sorry, Mr. Trump, you're not the president anymore. The privilege, we've listened to you, you've gotten a chance to weigh in, but the privilege belongs to President Biden, not to you. And it was a very strong statement from the district court. And I think that probably made DOJ feel they were on stronger grounds. However, shortly after the next day after that opinion came down, Trump's people appealed this to the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and the D.C. Circuit stayed execution of the district court's order on the production of these records, basically saying that, you know, there may be something here to look into. So if I were Bannon's lawyer, I would say, look, even the D.C. Court of Appeals found there was something here worth looking into that warranted staying the execution of the district court's order. How can you say that we didn't have a good faith argument on privilege grounds? So I think this is going to be a tough case for DOJ. And um, Garland has been, you know, has been criticized so much for being slow and conservative on January 6th, just charging the people who are in the building, not any of the organizers. This is a radical step forward. Bannon is clearly going to fight the case. I mean, it's a misdemeanor, so it's a one-year maximum. Um, and if you watched, he turned himself in at the FBI um, field office today. And if you saw any of the video of this, he looked like a you know a little kid going to the circus. He had a big smile on his face. He is wearing this as a badge of honor. It looks like he is very eager to fight these charges, and he there will be a trial on these charges. Um, so I, you know, I, again, I say this is a bold move by DOJ. It's a difficult prosecution. And if they go to trial and he's acquitted, that is going to have consequences for them. It's going to obviously look bad for them. But in the meantime, this is certainly sending a message to all those other Trump officials who've been subpoenaed, who have not complied with their subpoenas. 
that you better get in there. We're not playing around here. You will be criminally, you could be criminally prosecuted. And this issue is going to ripen with respect to the uh, subpoena to Mark Meadows. Adam Schiff has said they're considering a criminal contempt referral to DOJ with, response, with relation to that. And we will update on that next week. So this is going to be a very interesting one to see how it plays out. Yeah, thanks, Tom. I mean, look, I, I think we run into this all the time in our in our world, which is it's not so much proving the voluntarily the fact that an act was voluntarily undertaken, but it's here the, with the specific intent to do something that the law forbids. And, and, and right there, I mean, the, the, the fact that there was that letter at the outset submitted by his lawyer, um, you know, probably in itself presents a, a significant obstacle and probably one of the reasons why um, you as well as others are probably saying that, you know, this is going to be a tough case for justice to prove because you're going to have to show the specific intent to violate the law and where there is a record that you were trying to do something in compliance with the law, albeit not producing something due to various claims of privilege, which may or may not ultimately hold up in a court of law. Um, whether it wins in a court of law and whether it, whether that was a specific intent to do something the law um, forbids. Those are two different questions entirely. Right, now the indictment deals with this a little bit. It points out that that letter from the lawyer came seven hours after the deadline to produce the documents. Um, and uh, in the White House since 2017. And so basically what they're saying is, look, he violated the deadline. He didn't offer a legitimate argument. He didn't engage in discussions with the committee about production of these documents. But again, this is a criminal case we're talking about. Is missing the deadline by seven hours really evidence of willfulness? If it is, a lot of lawyers are going to be in uh, are going to be in big trouble. So I, um, yeah, I think he's going to fight this case, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I don't know. Is he going to move for a change of venue because the case is so notorious in the District of Columbia? Try to get it moved to a venue where he may get a more sympathetic jury. Is he going to claim that this is politically motivated, pointing to the fact that in 40 years we haven't seen a criminal prosecution like this by DOJ? Um, this is going to generate some really interesting issues in the litigation. Fascinating. Well, thank you, Tom and Carrie. Thank you. Awesome stuff again today. Um, we'll have you back at some point when more sanctions matters percolate up to our, our, our radar. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks, Carrie. It's always, it's always a lot of fun talking to you. Right back at you. All right, guys, with that, Gathering Crowds takes us home. <laughs>